We turn to Esther chapter 8. We'll read together the whole chapter, and once again, the whole chapter will be the text that we consider. Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther, the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is, the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants, and the deputies and rulers of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred and twenty-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people, after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote, in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by posts on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together, and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish, all the power of the people and the province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves and their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai 
went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Here we end our reading of the Holy Scriptures. Esther 8 resumes the fast-paced history of that providentially significant day. That day. The words which begin our text, referring to the day begun with Ahasuerus' sleepless night. The day, the morning of which, had seen Mordecai paraded around the city. The day of Esther's second banquet. The day of the exposure and unmasking of Haman, the day in which the tables were turned, the day in which Haman had been hung upon his own gallows, the day that deliverance would begin, starting in Shushan for God's people. That's what we're going to see in Esther chapter 8. So many things have happened in this history so far that have been leading to this moment. So many threads of history in the past chapters come together here. So many events are reversed and overturned. Esther 8 is a chapter of reversals. Great reversals. Reversals against the enemies of God's people and reversals in the favor of God's people. And this is the Lord's doing. This is the unseen king at work. Not only are the series of apparent coincidences that we have seen, not only are those his work, but the, res- the reversals that result from those seeming coincidences are his work as well. We've been coming to the climax of the, ch- of the book of Esther We've been at the climax, really. And now we begin in chapter 8 to see the beginning of the end. The beginning of the real resolution to the crisis. Deliverance begins in Shushan. That's going to be our theme tonight. Deliverance begins in Shushan. Let's first notice the fact of the unresolved crisis. The main crisis of the book is not yet resolved. Secondly, we will look at the counter-edict, which is published in order to resolve that crisis. And then finally, we will look at the renewed hope of God's people. The great crisis of the book is that the Jews from India to Ethiopia are going to be destroyed head for head. And that crisis is not yet averted. It's not over. Even though Haman is hanging upon his gallows, Haman's death doesn't end the danger to God's people. Because Haman's edict survives the death of its author. It lives on. It is still in force because the laws of the Medes and the Persians are irreversible. 
And so even though there has been this release of great tension at the end of chapter 7, the enemy of God's people has been given justice. Yet nonetheless, the crisis remains unresolved. From Ethiopia to India, all Jews shall still be destroyed, killed, and caused to perish. And the time is ticking. The 13th of Adar is coming. And so Esther presses her case on to secure the deliverance of her people. Ahasuerus' first action after ordering Haman's hanging is the redistribution of Haman's property. And that's what we read of in verse 1. The, the house of Haman is taken and given to Queen Esther. And that was a common practice when a man in a high position committed a crime and was executed. All of his property was forfeit and went to the crown. And now Ahasuerus, thinking himself generous, gives all of Haman's property to Queen Esther. And along with that came the right over Haman's family and those who pertained to him. Esther, having received that property, that doesn't solve anything for her. The danger to her people remains. And so as verse 1, verse 2 goes on to tell us, she explains to Ahasuerus who Mordecai is and reveals to the king what Mordecai is to her. Already, Esther has revealed her own Jewish identity and now she reveals her connection to Mordecai. Not merely their blood relationship, not merely the fact that Mordecai had been her adopted father, but likely also this, that he was her trusted advisor. Esther here in verses 1 and 2 orchestrates the political rise of Mordecai so that he can be put in a position to counteract Haman's edict. We can understand how this was the opportune time to orchestrate Mordecai's elevation. Mordecai was the very opposite of Haman. Haman had plotted secretly against the Jews, and against the queen. But Mordecai was the exact opposite of that. He was not a man who plotted against the king, but he was the man who uncovered the plot against the king a couple of years ago. He was the man that spoke well of the king. He was the man that the king delighted to honor that very moment. What better replacement for Haman? And that's what happens, as verse, two, as verse 2 tells us, Due to Esther's disclosing of who Mordecai was to her, Ahasuerus takes his signet ring, which apparently he had left with Haman, and pulled off Haman's finger before sending him to the gallows. Now Ahasuerus takes his own signet ring and puts it on Mordecai's finger, indicating that he invests Mordecai with the position, power, and authority that Haman had been given. And now there's that reversal we have been observing between Haman and Mordecai. That reversal is complete. Haman is on the gallows that he had designed for Mordecai. Gallows that stood in his own yard, which now belonged to Mordecai, as Esther the queen set Mordecai over Haman's former properties. And now Mordecai the Jew occupies the position of right-hand man of the king. Complete reversal. Haman has been dealt with. But the crisis is yet unresolved. 
Mordecai the Jew has been elevated. But the crisis is yet unresolved. On the ground, nothing has changed for the Jews. Their extermination is still fixed in the imperial calendar for the 13th of Adar, the 12th month. And that's only nine months away now. More must be done. And so Esther presses her case, striking while the iron is hot, while she has the king's favor, while she has his ear. And that's what we find now in Esther 8, 3 through 6. Let's read those verses. And really, this is Esther continuing the plea that she brought before the king in the dining room. Though the scene possibly has changed, it is that same day. Whether they're still in the dining room or whether they have moved to another part of the palace or to the king's private chambers or to the throne room, whatever the case may be, this is really a continuation of that plea that she made In the dining room. Now that Haman is gone. She can focus on her people. And so she says. Or we read. Beginning at verse 3. And Esther spake yet again before the king. And fell down at his feet. And besought him with tears. To put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite. And his device that he had devised. Against the Jews. We see Esther here. Setting aside the stately bearing that she had assumed in the dining room when she unmasked Haman and she lets a little more emotion out to pull at the heart hard and cold as Ahasuerus' heart often was nonetheless to pull at the heart of the king she falls down at his feet as a suppliant and pleads with many tears that he not only put away Haman but that he put away the device of Haman it appears that Ahasuerus thought he had fixed the situation. He had executed the man that plotted against his queen. He hung Haman on the gallows. He's given his signet ring to Mordecai. Esther has been entrusted with the estate of Haman. Everything's good. Let's move on, right? But there was unfinished business. And so Esther presses the case now with tears to beg for the life of her people. And that's what she does now in verses 4 through 6. Then the king held out his golden scepter toward Esther and This time it's not an act of mercy as if she has intruded upon him, but it is an indication of his favor and his continued willingness to hear her. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes. Notice how she piles up those humble statements and those flattering statements to the king. Four of them, one after another. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? In this continuation of her impassioned plea, we see the same shrewdness, the same brilliance that Esther has demonstrated in her interactions with the king ever since she approached him in the throne room. She appeals to him very tactfully. Still, she does not implicate the king, though he is guilty like Haman is. She puts all of the blame on Haman. He's the one that devised it. This was his decree. Because she has to play And operate within this Persian system which is corrupt. 
The only way to secure the help that her people need is to avoid implicating the king and stirring up his wrath. And she again makes this appeal very personal. How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? And then at the end of verse 5, she says, If I be pleasing in thy eyes, she, make it, she makes it personal. If you really care about me, king, if you really care about me, Ahasuerus, you'll save my people too. Do you want me to waste away in sorrow? Do you expect me to be fine? I might be safe. Mordecai might be safe now that you've elevated him. But you expect me to watch the destruction of my people? How could I endure that? If you really care about me, you won't let that happen. You will write to reverse the decree of Haman. And it's here that an apparent Obstacle arises. It arises in Ahasuerus' mind. And Esther knows it's coming. She knows what she's asking. is going to seem impossible to the king. As the king himself will say in his response. In verse 8. The writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Haman's edict was an edict of the king. It was issued under the king's name, sealed with the king's ring, and the Medes and the Persians, their laws were considered irrevocable, irreversible. They could not be taken back, not even by the king himself. Think of Daniel's situation in Daniel 6 verse 15, where the men who were persecuting Daniel said, Know, O king, that the laws of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. Ahasuerus feels that. He feels he can do nothing. And he doesn't really want to do anything either. And that's the spirit that we detect in his response in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. Behold, and the idea is, look. And you can detect a little bit of exasperation in his voice. Look, I've given Esther, the house of Haman, and him have I hanged upon the gallows because he laid his hands upon the Jews. I've done everything I can. Look, haven't I done enough? Write ye also for the Jews, he says. If you want anything more done, you're going to have to do it. I wash my hands of this business. I don't want anything to do with it. You write. And here's something else that's astonishing, isn't it? Ahasuerus, as he washes his hands of this matter, as he basically says, there's nothing more I can do about it, and he just pushes it to Esther and Mordecai, you do what you want. He does the very same thing 
that he did with Haman all over again. He hasn't learned anything. Remember, Haman came, and Haman had this idea for a decree. And Ahasuerus gave Haman his ring and said, you take care of it. Write whatever you want. You go. And now he does this very same thing with Esther. Ahasuerus hasn't learned a thing. And yet, this folly of the king will be used by God. Because now, Esther and Mordecai have been given royal permission to write whatever they want in the name of the king. Haman's edict cannot be reversed. But another edict, a counter-edict, may be written to counteract it. And that's what the majority of the text now describes for us. The counter-edict. Esther and Mordecai have something to work with. They have been given the same power that Haman had. They have been authorized to write whatever they want in the king's name and to publish it to the whole empire. To publish it to as wide an audience as Haman's edict had. And so Mordecai takes the king's ring and the authority given to him and he writes a counter-edict which will be published to the whole Persian Empire. And now in Esther 8, verses 9-13, through we have the content of that counter-edict. And what's fascinating is that Esther 8, 9-13, through mirrors Esther 3, verses 12-15. through Esther 3, 12-15 records the content of Haman's edict. And if you compare these two passages, they are almost the same. What Mordecai does is he takes Haman's edict and basically reworks it in favor of the Jews, changing what needs to be changed and making a few important additions. And this is very intentional. Mordecai crafts a counter-edict that is designed to counteract Haman's edict by legalizing the Jews doing exactly what Haman legalized their enemies to do to them. So let's briefly walk through Mordecai's edict and and see the different parts of it and how it mirrors Haman's edict. Beginning at verse 9. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is, the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, and to the lieutenants, and to the deputies, and to the rulers of the provinces, which were from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred and twenty-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, and according to their language. Once again, the whole machinery of the Persian Empire is put in motion. The scribes are called to work overtime, pumping out copies of a new empire-wide edict. And the publication date is given us here. The 23rd of the third month. Haman's edict was published the 13th day of the first month. And so what that means is two months and about ten days have passed since Esther 3. There is still a fair bit of time, about nine months, till Haman's decree will be carried out. But the clock is ticking. 
And so now Mordecai commands that basically the same edict get written, but with a few important changes. And in verse 9, one of those important changes comes out, namely who the edict is written to. You scan who the edict is written to, and you'll notice who's named first. The Jews. The Jews. They are placed before the king's lieutenants, his governors, his rulers. And that's intentional, not just because this edict is for the benefit of the Jews, but here is a subtle projection of Mordecai's newfound power. By placing the Jews first, he is communicating to all of the government officials of the Persian Empire, the Jews are the most important. It is a subtle message to them, this is the edict, you better obey. They are first. They are the ones that have the favor of the king's new right-hand man. And this edict is to be sent to as wide an audience as Haman's had from Ethiopia to India. Now going on to verse 10 of Esther 8. And he wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders and on mules and camels and young dromedaries. And a dromedary specifically refers to a camel, but the idea of that word is something that runs. Something that runs. But a literal translation would be young camels. Just like Haman's edict. The wording is the same It's written in the king's name, imprinted with the king's seal, so that as it goes out to the empire, Mordecai's edict has the authority of King Ahasuerus himself. It is as if Ahasuerus spoke it with his own voice in the ears of the people. But here again, there's another difference. In verse 10, we find much more detail, a much more detailed description of the animals that were used To send this decree out. In Esther 3, we find a more reserved description. The king's post was sent out. And that's pointing out again, in a subtle way, the superiority of Mordecai's decree. Every animal at the king's disposal, the royal horses, his camels, the young camels, everything was pressed into the service of distributing Mordecai's decree as fast as possible throughout the empire. Once again, sending the message, this is the decree that is to be followed. Then on to verse 11, we really get to the heart of the decree, the content. Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish all the power of the people and the province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil for them, to take the spoil of them for a prey. You recognize that language. That's the language of Haman's decree. That's the language Esther quoted to the king in the dining hall. And that's now the language that Mordecai works into his decree, except he turns it around. The Jews are given the right to assemble for the purpose of defending themselves. And that itself was quite something. In Persian society, right of assembly did not exist. Public assemblies were seen as a threat to the crown and were often ruthlessly crushed. 
The right of public assembly is granted to the Jews for the purpose of destroying, killing, and causing to perish all those who would assault them. The Jews were not permitted here to initiate the violence, but any who assaulted them, they were allowed to fight back against. And this edict even gave permission for, to the Jews to destroy the families of those who assaulted them and to plunder their property. The point being, and this is what Mordecai is getting at, everything that Haman's decree says may be done to the Jews, the Jews may now do to those who attack them. It's a counter decree intended to reverse Haman's decree, even though Haman's decree can't be retracted. Verses 12 and 13 finish up Mordecai's decree. Verse 12 specifies the day upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That's the same day that Haman had chosen for the extermination of the Jews. Mordecai states that as the one day for the Jews to gather in self-defense. And then verse 13, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. And there is one other important difference. Haman's edict had stated that the people were to be ready against that day, prepared and ready to carry out the decree of extermination. Mordecai says the Jews must be ready to stand for their life and to avenge themselves upon their enemies. And there again is another subtle projection of his power, a subtle message to all those who received this decree. If the Jews were being allowed to avenge themselves, that tells you who is right in the eyes of the crown and the crown's right-hand man. And that tells you which edict you ought to obey. Mordecai's. Now in reading this, there are ethical questions that arise. How could Mordecai write a decree that allows the slaughter not only of those who violently assaulted the Jews, but their families and the plunder of their goods? How can Mordecai write a decree allowing the Jews to avenge themselves? Isn't vengeance the Lord's? And yes. We can fault Mordecai's decree on both of those counts. But the focus that the text wants us to see is that Mordecai's decree is scripted to be the complete reverse of Haman's. There is a sort of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth here. And the point of it is this. If you are to carry out Haman's decree, recognize the very same thing is going to befall you. And think, Persian princes, think, people of the empire, which decree do you wish to follow? The author of the first decree is hanging on the gallows right now. The author of the second decree is wearing the king's signet ring right now. Which decree will you follow? Mordecai's counter-decree was masterfully crafted to counteract 
Haman's. We will see how it works in chapter 9, the chapter that is coming. Well, at this point, let's make a few applications of the history as we have seen it so far. First, how thankful ought we to be that we have a king like our king? Over and over again, we've been contrasting Ahasuerus with Jehovah. Ahasuerus and our God. And here's another reason to adore our king and be thankful for our king. Who never changes. Whose word is sure. Think about it. What this must have been like for the Persian people. Living in the empire. Trying to go about their daily lives. And having these two completely contradictory royal edicts. Distributed through the whole empire. What chaos. What confusion this must have created. What uncertainty. And behind it is again that folly of the king himself. He's trying to save face here. He's trying to wash his hands of this matter. And he ends up publishing his folly empire-wide once again. Another dose of irony. Remember when the king made a fool of himself publishing his folly to the empire when he deposed Queen Vashti and then let the whole empire know about it? With his silly edict about how all of the wives in Persia must give honor to their husbands. And by doing that he broadcast his own, Ill- his own inability to control his queen. Well now he does the same thing again. And he publishes far and wide an edict that contradicts his first one. Displaying for everyone his own inability to make good decisions. His own inability to rule well. His own inability to govern and control those under his authority. Ahasuerus is again unmasked as a fool. And we see here the folly and the ruin that comes from making man's laws unchangeable. No man, no king, no office bearer may presume to have such wisdom and authority that his laws, his decisions, his thinking cannot be changed or challenged. Satan wants men to believe that. Satan came to our first parents in the garden and said, ye shall be as gods. Ahasuerus thought himself a god. That's why the laws of the Medes and the Persians were considered irreversible because the kings had godlike status. But that brings misery and ruin. In the church, in the Christian home, the only law that is completely unchangeable and irreversible, the only word that is irrevocable and unquestionable is God's word. And that's why all of the laws, all of the rules, all of the decisions in the Christian home, in the Christian church must be based upon the changeless and pure word of God. God is the only one who never changes. And therefore it is God's word which alone is perfect and sure and pure as silver seven times tried. God never contradicts himself. God never issues contradictory words or commands. God's word is sure and certain. And thus his word is, is 
the sure guide for faith and life and the sure foundation for faith and life. What a great comfort comes out of that when you apply that to the specific words that God speaks to us in the scriptures. Apply that to the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Apply that to the verdict of justification when God, on the basis of Christ's work, says to you, my child, I pronounce you righteous in my sight for the sake of Jesus Christ and I forgive your sins and I constitute you an heir of eternal life. That word goes forth from God's mouth and it will never change. It is the irreversible word, declaration of the changeless God, Jehovah the King. He will not take it back. He will not publish later Another edict, another word that undoes the first one. The stability, the certainty of our salvation, our comfort, our hope is grounded in the changeless being of Jehovah, our unseen King. That word of the gospel comes to you, weary people of God, and says, You're forgiven. It's an irrevocable, irreversible word. The second application. We see the hand of the unseen king in the history here, do we not? Behind Mordecai's edict. God, the one who has been orchestrating all of these events. God, who has caused Esther's plea for her people to be successful thus far. God now raises Mordecai and puts him in this position and it is God's decree that stands behind Mordecai's counter edict. Mighty kings publish edicts all the time. Governments legislate new laws that dictate the lives of thousands. But neither kings nor governments nor any man nor their edicts are truly determinative. The one who stands behind it all is Jehovah the unseen king and his decrees, his eternal decrees. And all of history is really the unfolding of the changeless, unstoppable, eternal decrees of God. At the center of which is Christ. And our salvation in Christ. And thus, the Apostle Paul says, In Ephesians 1 verse 11, in whom, in him, also we have an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. History, the big picture, as well as the smallest details, all of it is the unfolding of God's decree. Mordecai's edict that will be used to deliver the Jews from their impending doom. Behind that is the decree of God for the salvation of his people. The decree of predestination in which he chose each and every one of his elect people. The decree to save his people in Jesus Christ. That decree stands behind Mordecai's decree. And Mordecai's decree is just one of the means that God uses in the unfolding of his decree 
for his people's salvation. And thus the theme of Esther rises before our eyes once again. The unseen king preserves. But now a third application. Esther 8 is a chapter of reversals. We keep seeing those reversals. That's because Jehovah the unseen king is a god of reversals. And wondrously so. He is the God who reverses the irreversible. The God who reverses the irreversible by doing the unimaginable and the humanly impossible. And the most amazing reversal that he works is the reversal of your eternal lot and mine. The reversal of our eternal destiny. The eternal destiny of guilty sinners such as you and I are. Who were going to perish everlastingly. Who were going to be justly destroyed, slain, and caused to perish. Everlastingly. By that edict of death. The edict of God's law. Which unlike Haman's law is a just edict. The edict of God's law. Which unlike Haman's edict is truly irreversible. God's law condemns the sinner. And God's law is not based on the fickle will of a tyrant like Ahasuerus' law was. But God's law and its sentence of the sinner is based on that eternal and unchangeable being of God. The law's condemnation is an irreversible edict against the sinner. And it's humanly, truly humanly impossible to change that. It is humanly impossible to publish some sort of counter edict to change that. And now aren't we left with a situation that looks Like two contradictory edicts of the one true God. On the one hand, there is his decree of salvation. His decree of election to save his people in Jesus Christ. That is his good pleasure. And yet, over here, there is the sentence. The irreversible and unchangeable sentence of his law. Condemning the sinner to death. But it's not a contradiction. And God doesn't wring his hands helplessly like Ahasuerus does. God doesn't wash his hands of us. But God accomplishes the human, the humanly impossible, the most wonderful reversal. He saves us without reversing the law's sentence against us, but executing it. God doesn't counter-edict his own law, but instead fulfills it by the giving of his only begotten Son. And the truly irreversible law and the irrevocable sentence of that law, which should have come upon us, comes upon him, our representative, our head, And he takes that eternal condemnation and bears it. He takes the guilt of our sin and bears it. The fullness of the law's sentence falls upon him. There's no reversal here. The son bears it. The son dies for us. And he does so in love because the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
cannot endure to see this evil come upon the people he loves. And he saves. He accomplishes the greatest reversal. By taking our sins and by taking the law's sentence, he reverses our eternal destiny. We who ought to perish under the edict of the law are now pronounced righteous in God's sight on the basis of the work of the king's son who has delivered us from wrath. All of this leads us to cry out with Paul, Oh, the depth of both the, writ- of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways past finding out. There's the greatest and most wonderful reversal. Our salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's what all of the reversals of Esther 8 serve. That's why all of this history is happening. Orchestrated by God in this way. For the sake of this coming Christ. And his accomplishing. Of that great reversal. Salvation. of Poor sinners. Like you and me. Well if we end with the renewed hope. The edict went out with all speed, beginning at Shushan the palace. And the immediate result is that wherever the edict went, the edict of Mordecai, there was an ever-widening circle of joy and celebration beginning at Shushan. Renewed hope. The hope of God's people was renewed by the reversals that happened that day, the reversals that happened as suddenly as the calamity had come upon them. And we see that reversal in Mordecai himself. In Esther chapter 4, we saw Mordecai walking the streets of Shushan in sackcloth and ashes, crying out and weeping. And here, in the end of our text, we see Mordecai coming forth from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. That temporary honor that had been given him that morning is now replaced with a permanent position of honor in the king's court. Reversal. There's reversal for Shushan. The city itself and for the larger population of the Persian Empire. The text indicates that the city of Shushan was glad with Mordecai's elevation. Verse 15. Or rather, yes, verse 15. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And here's another reversal. You remember how chapter 3 ended? After Haman's edict was published? Ahasuerus, Haman sit down to drink, and the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now the city rejoices. So much so, that we read in verse 17, the last verse of our text, many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And the idea here is that many people throughout the Persian Empire began identifying themselves with the Jewish community, even professing themselves to be Jews, meaning 
They became proselytes. They adopted the Jewish religion. They became Jews. Now, undoubtedly, many of these conversions were not genuine. The text itself identifies identifies the reason behind their becoming Jews. The fear of the Jews fell upon them. These people saw the shift in the balance of power in Persia. Mordecai the Jew was now the king's right-hand man. They saw which direction the winds were blowing and they conformed. But, there's no doubt either that there were some conversions that were genuine. Think of Rahab many, many years ago. How she heard about the exodus of the people from Egypt and how God delivered them through the wilderness and gave his people victory over the kings that they did battle with in the wilderness, and how God used that report that Rahab had heard to work faith in her heart so that she received the two spies by faith. Similar thing happened here in Persia. That there was an ingathering of a small first fruits of the Gentiles. People who heard what had happened. And were given a glimpse of the hand of the unseen king in it. And saw what Zeresh hinted at. That there's more going on here than meets the eye. This God of the Jewish people is a God who truly does arise to the defense of his people. They saw it and they were afraid and they came to fear that one true God. And here's a wonderful, beautiful good that God brought out of all of the trouble and all of the evil that we have seen so far in the history of Esther. God used this to save elect Gentiles, a first fruits in the empire of Persia. But the reversal we see especially for the Jews. Mordecai represents the Jews. His reversal is a reversal for them as well. In Esther chapter 4, we saw the Jews in sackcloth and ashes as well. Mourning, crying, wailing, But now what does the text say? In verse 15, they had light, gladness, joy, and honor. And that's the joy of a renewed hope. Even though deliverance is not yet fully realized, deliverance is beginning in Shushan. And wherever there was faith among the Jews, the eyes of faith saw what the unseen king was doing. They saw that the God who had been their help in ages past was still their hope here and now. Still their help. Hope was renewed. And now Mordecai, their man, stands in the king's court in a position of power. Imagine the joy that spread all the way to Jerusalem as the horses rode into the city bringing Mordecai's edict. Renewed hope. There's renewed hope for us too as we hear this word of God. In the book of Esther we see all of these things go wrong for God's Old Testament people. 
And we watch as God, the unseen king, marvelously works to reverse them, to preserve and to save his people. This God is our God. The Jews rejoice as they see Mordecai elevated to a position of power such that he is able to protect them. We have that, but in a far greater way. The Christ who died for us and took the sentence of the law for us, he is the Christ who is also highly exalted for us. The Jews rejoiced because they had their man now in Ahasuerus' court with Ahasuerus' signet ring able to defend them. We may put it this way, we have our man. The man who came and identified himself with us. God the Son who took upon our flesh and became a man, became our Savior. He is in the court of heaven's King. He is there. For us, he is our advocate, he is our intercessor, he is tirelessly at work, preserving his people and accomplishing our deliverance. Does that not fill us with hope? Our redemption is not yet fully realized. We're still in the midst of this world of sin and death facing so many enemies, just as the Jews in in the text, their, their deliverance was not fully realized, but it is certain. It is certain. Because the exalted Christ, He has gotten us the victory. Already now, we have light, gladness, joy, and honor, a feast, and a good day. Like Mordecai, we go out into a new week. We leave this church service in royal apparel, the robes of Christ's righteousness. Go forth, beloved, with that renewed awareness of what you're wearing. Not your Sunday best merely, but something far better. The righteousness of Christ. You go forth with the irreversible word of forgiveness in your heart. And that crown, the crown that fadeth not away, that is yet to come. That is what we look forward to with renewed hope. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this word, for this history in which we can see so clearly thy work of salvation. Bless it to our hearts that with renewed joy and hope, we may trust in thee and go forward in the midst of this world, though it is full of darkness, knowing that thou shalt surely be our guide, even unto death, through which thou wilt take us into the glory of the kingdom to come. Hear us in mercy, for Jesus' sake. Amen.